is a battle going on today for the heart and soul of America, and the right side must win. It's time for America Can We Talk with Debbie George Addis. On America Can We Talk, we talk truth about America and why it matters to you. America Can We Talk starts now. And good evening. This is Debbie George Addis, and this is America Can We Talk. In today's first five, we're going to honor Labor Day. I want to do a status report on working in America. There was a recent report out about employment in America, and just I know stats are hard on the radio, so I'm only going to give you one to start with. The percentage of American women, American men, just men, percent of American men aged 20 or older without paid work in America today is nearly one-third. 32% of men over 20 in America are not working. And even if you pick the, and you know, this is all reported in a report recently, making the point that Americans, not there are too few Americans actually working. And this is, you know, unhealthy for our economy. But the other, other uh, the traditional prime of working life ages, which is 25 to 54, so this is men only, leaving women out of it, men only, 25 to 54, 7 million of them are not working, which is 15%, more than 1 in 10. And the labor force participation rate, the numbers that say, essentially, it is, it is the rate that compares employment to population, is the lowest it's been since the 1970s. In short, America's not working. And the consequence on this Labor Day weekend to contemplate for America is this. The consequence includes slower economic growth, widening gaps in income and wealth, and reduced tax revenues. And I'm going to tell you two stories that can really help us point the way to solving this problem of not enough Americans are working. The first one is my Latvian shoe factory story. And in short, I have a friend here in Dallas who, during the time Latvia, one of the Eastern Bloc countries, was still communist under control of Russia. He was over in Latvia some kind of mission trip, was in a town where, a small town where there was a shoe factory, and everyone in that town worked for the shoe factory. Happy. And the um, interesting thing was, they had a, um, everyone in that town from the, uh, who worked there, from the one who ran the factory, to the lowest level person who, you know, swept the floors at night, was paid exactly the same. On top of that, the shoe factory, they produced one kind of shoe. These were rubber shoes. They were extremely uncomfortable. They made your feet too hot. But every year, uh, all year long, these people go to the factory, they work at this place, they manufacture shoes. And then at the end of the year, every year, they load up these thousands of shoes made in their factory into a big truck, drive out of town, dump them into a dump, and burn them because nobody wanted those shoes. It was just simply make work. These people in that Latvian town were paid by the communist government. They had a job, but they didn't care what they produced. No one even spent time thinking about, gee, we should probably make a shoe that people would like better. What if we made one that people actually wanted to buy? It didn't matter to them. So this Latvian shoe factory is one story. The second story is the story of my husband's um, grandfather. My husband's grandfather came to America from Greece as a stowaway on a cargo ship. He guessed to him he had no future, no potential job opportunities in Greece. So he came to America, stowaway in a cargo ship, gets here. He did go through Ellis Island, became legal, went out to California. He never, and we don't know how he even got to California, but he never learned to speak English very well. But what he did do in California is he start, he found a job he could handle. He could dig ditches for a power company, and he did this for years. So he dug ditches, but he also married. He married uh, someone, an American person who spoke English, and in that marriage, they produced four children. So today, here we are in America. We have my husband.
husband, the grandson of the Greek stowaway, as a lawyer, was a, a partner in a major law firm, is a very successful businessman. This is the right idea of the American dream. Everyone in that family worked. They worked to improve themselves, to earn money, to keep, to keep their way. So now let's think about what the solutions are to this unemployment in America as the Democrats versus the Republicans run for office this fall. Hillary's solutions are government-created jobs. She's not talking about just jobs that government has to pay people for, like in the military or border security. She's talking about government with a purpose, a mission to be a job creator with a government as the employer. She's talking about the green energy kind of jobs, kind of similar to the Latvian shoe factory. Donald Trump is talking about creating jobs in the private sector. He's talking about changing laws to enable private sector employment to grow, to stop immigration, which causes too many people to have jobs taken away from American citizens, given to others. He's talking about building up the energy industry. He's talking about securing our borders. He's talking about having reduced tax rates and reduced regulations that create private jobs. Donald Trump is talking about the formula that has been successful for America since we began. Hillary's talking about the path to Venezuela or Cuba. She's talking when, when you think that the solution to find employment is for the government to take more power, more money out of the private sector, hurting the job creators in the private sector. You're not talking about America. You're talking about something off track, wrong and un-American. And in this voting, in this cycle this fall, whoever you think you like, keep in mind the prosperity of America came from the kind of things Donald Trump is proposing. And we cannot go the other way. We can't become Venezuela. We can't become Cuba. We've got to remain America. I'm Debbie Georgiatis, and this is America Can We Talk. And that's my first five for today. Coming up in the next segment, I want to tell you about what the FBI has been up to while you've been enjoying your Labor Day weekend. Because once you figure out what they've been up to, it's going to give you even more ammo to think through. Could I possibly ever vote for Hillary Clinton? Come back after our break. Talk. This is Debbie George Addis. Okay, we're having fun out here. I found some music that uh, all these working tune music, um, working song lyrics that talk about working, and so we're going to play some of them in the show tonight. We're going to do that for sure. They're uh, really fun ones. This is Labor Day weekend, and I'll tell you, you know, speaking of working, going back to what I was saying in the first segment, I did the first five today on, on Labor Day and what working in America really requires. This study I was talking about is really important to talk about, and we're going to do a little more in the second hour. I want to plant a couple seeds of that came from this study, which was essentially the idea that if you are, uh, the, the the likelihood of you being in the workforce is increased if you are married. And you might, you know, we were just talking the break among the three of us, my leading ladies are here, Mari Sullivan, Laurie Medina for a second hour, and we we're talking about how it's kind of circular. If you're married and you feel responsible for a, a wife and a family, you're going to find a job, even if you lose your job or having a hard time, because you know you have to take care of your family. And this isn't to denigrate the role of women taking care of families, too. Women work. They contribute income. 
But the whole thing of all these men in America not working, it is circular and has has contributed to the destruction of the family. And so, you know, there are all the stats about you're just more likely if you're married to be working. We'll hit that more in the second hour, but I thought that was really important to add to that. Okay, so what I want to hit uh, in this uh, segment, and you know, we have a great guest who's coming up with us at the, at the um, 6.30 hour. I actually pre-recorded my interview with her. She is a uh, just a famous, was wonderful to have her on the show, a famous journalist named Claudia Rossette, who recently joined the Independent Women's Forum um, board. As a, She's won all sorts of international awards, and for her writing, she was, she was at Tiananmen Square when that incident happened, and she won some big prize for writing about. She's really stellar. So she's going to talk with us at, at 6.30, but what I want to talk about in this hour, and I tell you folks, during this campaign season, there has been so much conversation about email leaks and emails and email servers and where it was located and what was the reason for it. And I actually think there's a little bit of a fatigue factor. I think people are starting to say, okay, is this another story about emails and come on, what is a big deal? And they, we just, you know, and I can hear people even on the conservative side saying, look, whatever benefit politically the GOP is going to get out of this, they've gotten if people are either bothered by the GOP, by, by Hillary Clinton having her server at home or they're not. They're either bothered by the fact that she used a private server and endangered our national security, or they don't care. And so continued leaks are a waste of time. And I'll tell you something, folks, I know, I understand why people are kind of implying that, but this is a really big thing that happened over the weekend. First of all, the FBI, which interviewed Hillary Clinton about her use of the email servers and the private server and why she did it, it is not happenstance. It's not coincidence that they waited till a busy holiday weekend when many of us are traveling and visiting family and tuned out and swimming in the pool, whatever we're doing, to release what they did on Friday, which is essentially new FBI documents that deal with Hillary's interview at the FBI, what she did and didn't say. And this was the interview that you will recall. She was, um, she was not uh, testifying under oath, or to use the, a new verb we're using tonight, deponed. She was not D-E-P-O-N-E-D. She was not deponed. She wasn't testifying under oath. She just got the liberty from the FBI to go and talk to them without being sworn to speak under penalty of perjury. But here we are. These documents got released, and the staggering depth of Hillary Clinton's, number one, incompetence, number two, arrogance. Incompetence, arrogance. But the worst thing of all, when I say incompetence, I mean truly questionable mental capacity to handle this job. I'm going to point out just a few of the things. Hillary Clinton was asked, um, she was asked about, you know, when she was Secretary of State and they gave her briefings. They said, you know, Madam uh, Secretary of State, you really have to use an email server that is protected by the United States government. And she didn't want to do that. And so she's being asked in this. She testified, this is according to Julia Edwards of Reuters, that this, this new FBI document drop said, Hillary Clinton told federal investigators she did not recall all the briefings she received on handling government records well, U.S. Secretary of State, because of a concussion she suffered in 2012. She's admitting that the concussion damaged her memory. She's admitting she didn't have the mental capacity to answer the FBI and say, I did know I was supposed to be uh, use the government ser- server. I did know I was supposed to be careful. I didn't know. I don't even remember it. 
And this is a woman who wants to be in charge of the intricacies and details of federal policies in, in arenas, in thousands of arenas. She wants to be in charge of America. And she, and I'll tell you something else, there was all this fuss recently when Rudy Giuliani raised the question, is Hillary healthy enough to be president? I mean, all the liberal outlets went crazy and they had experts talking about how ridiculous this was. And of course she's fine. And here it is, Hillary's own words. She's essentially acknowledging she has a disability due to her brain injury. She said it. Okay, so that's number one. This, this is actually fairly staggering. Okay, number two is she justified, Hillary justified using the server on the grounds that she wanted to only carry one handheld device. However, during the course of the time she was Secretary of State, she had 13 of them. 13. She also testified in front of the FBI, we now know, when these aides told, they're often told to destroy her old Blackberries as she would take on a new one or sometimes lost them. Okay, these are, she's using these Blackberry, she's using, getting government email of a highly confidential nature in her own computer, uh, which is email coming into her phone, and she lost some of them. She also talked about, I mean, this stuff is just staggering. She also answered the question that when uh, the, she told the FBI that she did not know that the C marks on classified material meant classified. She didn't know what the C meant. She said, Actually, she speculated it was referencing perhaps a paragraph marked in alphabetical order, like you might get an email that says in the subject line, hey, see paragraph C, are we okay with this, or something like that. That's what she said she thought all the C's she saw in all her emails were, was referring to some paragraph number. This is Hillary Clinton with just, as I say, arrogance, incompetence, or genuine brain injury. The woman is talking as though she is just a... a, child who's never had to learn important things. Other things that came out in these FBI documents just this weekend, she actually talked about she didn't know how classified intelligence worked. She could not give an example of how classification of a document was determined. She didn't recall receiving any emails she thought should not be on an unclassified system. Did not recall receiving any emails in four years as Secretary of State of the United States of America that contained any information she thought would would not be okay on an unclassified system. Even although she acknowledged they were discussing deliberation over a future drone strike, that didn't cause her concern about whether information about a future drone strike and where we're going to strike was should, should be passed around on an email, an unclassified email. She also hid 17,448 work-related emails from the State Department. This is after, this is a woman who's, oh, another one. So she was told early on, she was warned early on in an email when she was Secretary of State, you know, we have a, a newly stepped up security. You have to be using government secure. You've got to be doing, following the system here. Didn't recall that. And she actually um, received something like 81 classified email chains um, with eight of those email chains classified as top secret, 37 email chains classified as secret, and 36 email chains classified as confidential at the time they were sent. And yet she told America, I mean, it has to be dozens of times now in various news uh, conferences, she said, I never sent or received information marked classified. So this is just a, um, 
I don't even know how to tell you the importance of this. I know America is thinking, okay, we already know the story. She used an unclassified server, and she wasn't supposed to do that. And she said she was sorry, and she said she didn't mean to do anything about it, and the FBI has cleared her, and they said she had no intent. Folks, you you would hold your banker to a higher level of standard. Your banker who had who had the responsibility to protect your classified bank account information in your personal bank. You would hold your doctor to a higher standard and the personnel nature of your medical records. You would hold dozens of Americans and variety of, of categories of Americans of jobs. You'd hold them to a higher standard. She wants to be president. And this stuff, I mean, it is just absolutely staggering. Another thing, I've just got to make clear what she did. So she decided, she decided after, i got to find the right paragraph to tell you, she transmitted stuff after she realized there was a problem. She wiped her email again after the New York Times reported on her private email server. According to the FBI, one person interviewed indicated that he believed she had said she had an oh, blankety blank moment. And sometime between March 25th to March 31 in 2015, she deleted the Clinton Archive mailbox from the PRN server and used BleachBit to delete the exported PST files. She uses the most effective deletion thing known to mankind, but she's trying to act like no intent, no, nothing I did wrong here. Folks, there couldn't be any worse problem for us to have as the President of the United States of America. Talk to you after the break. This evening, we have a great guest joining us, and she is on the line with us, Claudia Rossette, and she is a, um, a, a foreign policy fellow on the board of the Independent Women's Forum, and that's one of the groups that advertises on this show, the Independent Women's Forum. Love that group. Great resource for all sorts of information. Um, just fair-minded and rational and pro-free market, uh, pro-free America, um, thinking of a, a group of women. So I just love them. Okay, so, but the reason we're talking with Claudia Rosette tonight is that there's an issue relating to the internet that um, I've just, have just been getting attention recently um, from, in fact, Texas Senator said, Crute, Texas Senator Ted Cruz has gotten in the middle of it, but it's about the control of the Internet. And one more thing before we get on to that subject, I want to tell you just a bit more about our guest who's coming on with us. Just we were talking actually before we came on about what a stellar and interesting life you've had, interesting careers. But I've been a Wall Street Journal editorialist. Um, she actually switched over to reporting uh, on Wall Street Journal. Um, she's won this overseas press club citation for excellence for reporting on the ground uh, on the ground at Tiananmen Square in 1990 that's pretty amazing and um so she's just had a history as a journalist and a writer and uh very international in flavor and so now we'll turn to the subject of our our thing tonight the title of this just said Congress has one month to keep the internet under US control so what is going on uh, okay, here I'm picking up on a column by Gordon Krovitz, an old colleague from when I worked at the Wall Street Journal, we were both there, um, who wrote this week a warning, a very serious warning, that the Internet, which uh, sort of at the root of all things with the Internet, is this company, Icon, the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, which operates the entire World Wide Web root zone, okay, the domains. And this is a monopoly which has been overseen really since it, since it began 
by the U.S. government, by the Department of Commerce. The contract between Commerce and ICANN is due to expire. President Obama is not planning to renew it. And what Gordon Krovitz warns us about, take this very seriously in the Wall Street Journal, is that if that happens, ICANN will lose its antitrust exemption. It will go looking for some other housing, basically, to take care of it as a monopoly. And the place that has been reaching out has been after this for years, has been looking for any way to get basic control over the Internet is the United Nations. That is very likely the next step. That's something to be very concerned about. I couldn't agree more. I think putting United Nations and control of the Internet in the same sentence is just, it should be very, very alarming. Let me back up and ask, though. So I can, they, uh, like, what is that? I know it's, a, I know the name of it. I know what it stands for. But I mean, it is a, is a private entity that, that has control over the entire Internet. I mean, how to get started? Who is it? The, the root zones of the Internet. In other words, it assigns domain, non-domains, non-problem. I'm the wrong person to ask for really detailed technicalities on this. Um, however, what I can vouch for is Gordon Krovitz knows what he's talking about on this. He does know the, And uh, it is... Basically, if you want a domain, he gives an example of what's been happening since apparently the Obama administration is, has stopped carrying out much in the way of oversight over ICON in recent years as the time has, as the time has approached when President Obama wants America to give it up. Uh, and they do say they assign the domain names. So when you want a domain, the names, you know, ED, the Columbia.edu. He gives examples of things that people have been having trouble getting, uh, things that would confirm, for instance, that if somebody looks like, if something looks like a government, a state government website, that it really is. Uh, CPAs who want a CPA.com or .net. Um, they, uh, in, uh, ICON operates this, assigns these names, um, so it has quite a good deal of control over what, actually, what people are actually able to do with the Internet. And what you have is the U.S. has been a benign overseer of this monopoly for years and years. Uh, the, the problem is who's going to oversee this? As a rule, I'd say, you know, let the free market handle it. But this is something where that probably wouldn't go so well. The question is who's the best steward possible? That has been the United States, except that President Obama, as one more parting gift to his administration, has decided it should no longer be the United States. So we're going to give it up. It's sort of going to be handed over to the so-called international community. And that basically, very most likely, the United Nations. What that means is it will become easier for authoritarian governments to censor the Internet. And you have... On the U.N., I am far better versed on why you really don't want the U.N. doing this, okay? Yeah. The basic question is, okay, who's going to supervise this thing? Is it going to be the United States? Is it going to be the international community? Well, the problem with the U.N. is it's opaque. It has an incredible history of scandalous abuse of power, waste, fraud. You know, they have a... They've, they can't stop their own problem with peacekeepers raping minors that they're sent to protect. They have had 
one massive financial scandal after another there. They have things going on like uh, uh, a former head of the General Assembly at the UN was recently indicted on charges of fraud connected with this conspiracy in which prosecutors said he turned his job into a platform for profit and then died mysteriously in June after a barbell fell on his neck at his home in Dobbs Ferry, New York. Welcome to the UN. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a place where one of the largest voting blocs in the General Assembly is overseen by, wait for it, Iran, the non-aligned movement. They've been heading that for, since 2012. Uh, and as you know, we all know since the beginning, the Security Council has included among its five veto-wielding permanent members, Russia and China. Well, the problem is you don't want that kind of an outfit making decisions that involve your daily life. And here we have the Internet, which has been really one of the great, amazing miracles and gifts of modern technology. Yes. (laughs) And you don't want... The UN looks for any way it can to involve itself in everything possible. You know, if I may... President Obama right now is looking for a way to, without submitting, again, without submitting a treaty to the Senate, the same way he did an end run on the Iran nuclear deal, the same way he's just sort of bypassed Congress with his pen and phone, to, uh, to, to make this climate accord. Well, the United Nations has been the prime pusher campaigner on climate matters, uh, although it's been sort of an evolving thing, you know, warning, warning against global cooling, global warming, any change at all. Uh, you know, I sort of wonder what would they prefer to affix the climate to exactly what it was around <laughs> on the day that Al Gore was born. Um, but the United Nations has been using one thing after another to try and gain, gain control over basically large flows of money and power which is an old human story. But the Internet is big here, and this is something where Congress has until... uh, If if Congress does not act to extend a ban on President Obama letting ICON go, effectively turning it over to the UN, uh, then on October 1st, it's up for grabs. So there's basically one month for Congress to do something. You know, this is, you mentioned how important the Internet is. It is the single most important vehicle for free speech, for the exchange of ideas in the world. It is the place everyone goes to figure out what really happened here. They can read all sorts of commentary submitted by anyone who feels like submitting commentary. It's the place, it is, it is the, the opportunity for everybody in every part of the world to find out what's happening. And so you mentioned, so this notion, first of all, I'll get clear, Congress could act in the next 30 days before the end of September and and block President Obama's effort to essentially abandon ICON. And everyone knows, or everyone assumes, if he abandons ICON, then it'll go to the UN. So Congress, um, who in Congress is, uh, what is it going to take? I, I'm, I'm shocked that, that there aren't conservatives, cl- I know Ted Cruz, but just clamoring to get this uh, get this deal back on track. I mean, get, get American control back on. You know, I got to ask you, I know we said one segment. Can you hold on during that for a brief time and, and come back for another segment? Yeah, sure. I really appreciate that okay. because I don't want to miss these um, things. We're going to cut I sh- off your... I should tell you, I'm not versed in the, com- in the intricacies of who in Congress precisely is pursuing this, but I can certainly speak to, you know, the pro- I can talk about the problem of why, they're not pers- why this has not been a bigger issue uh, because there have been so many things that are being 
done wrong right now. It's, you know, North Korea is about to conduct a fifth nuclear test. Nobody's paying attention. It's breathtaking. It's, it's yeah. unbelievable. Okay, we're speaking with, and we're going to come right back and speak with, after our break, to Claudia Rosette of Independent Women's Forum. We'll be back in just a moment. So we're talking with Claudia Rosette, and she is, again, I'm grateful to have her on our show uh, this evening. She is a the, the Foreign Policy Fellow at the Independent Women's Forum. We're talking about an article she was she's commenting on. She wrote an article about the potential for America to abandon its role, its historic role, as the, um, so the protector of ICON, which is the Internet... Uh, it is the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers. It's essentially the group um, that controls the Internet, that controls the signing of names and numbers. And so it's a astonishingly important thing. And right now, where we are, the perilous situation we're in is that if, if unless President Obama goes ahead and has the Department of Commerce uh, sign again the next contract for with ICON, then if, if that doesn't happen in 30 days... ICON becomes unwedded to the U.S. and people assume it's going to become wedded to the United Nations. So I, I want to go back because you are smart about the U.N. and I really want to just point out the absurdity of the idea. You're talking about people in the U.N. who limit speech and in, in the Internet in their own countries or you're talking about countries that don't let Internet freedom happen and they're going to be in charge of the Internet. I mean, it's an astonishing poss- potential. Yes, it is. In fact, this uh, would cap... A year after year, the UN has looked for ways to gain control over the internet, to regulate it, to tax it, um, and over and over, this has come from countries that censor their own populations. There was a big summit in Tunis in 2005. Well, they, that was that was before the whatever we now call the Arab uprising, the Arab Spring. That was uh, there was no freedom of speech there. Uh, they had a big shindig in. Egypt, they've, this has been bubbling along for years, and they've looked for one way after another, because unfortunately, while the UN was founded to be this marvelous organization dedicated to peace and freedom at the end of World War II, it has become this enormous, unaccountable, self-aggrandizing, and ever-expanding bureaucracy. And one of the things that this feeds on is sources of money, ways of expanding power, and one of the things that the internet obviously is there's sort of this constant push on any by the side of governments to how to is there are there ways to tax the internet to take control of it and at the united nations where there's no transparency at the un itself there's very little accountability uh as i was saying earlier it's been one of these scandals bubble up one after another that are basically uh, become big because there is so little transparency at the UN. Um, this is just the wrong place to have shepherding in any way. 
something that is vital at this point to freedom of speech, to communication, to and to business, to the exchange of information, um, <laughs> to lower transactions costs that we all benefit from. Uh, you really don't want the United Nations involved with any of this. Unfortunately, President Obama over and over again, it's what he did with Libya, and we've seen the results, shunted that really to the United Nations. Here, we're going to get a UN resolution. We'll help. That'll fix them. Yeah, Yeah, that'll fix them. (laughs) And then it was just left by President Obama and Hillary Clinton to fall into the state where at this point ISIS is there. We had the horror in Benghazi where for the first time in more than 30 years, a serving American ambassador was killed. Uh, That's what came out of that. Well, the you don't want this. You don't want the UN supervising the internet. Actually, you really don't want the UN involved in anything that is important to the wealth and prosperity of the planet. But this in particular <laughs> is vital. I'm so with you on that. We are speaking, and I just have to thank you so much for speaking with Claudia Rosette. She is the foreign policy fellow at the Independent Women's Forum. She's also a fount of knowledge about the United Nations and brilliantly pointing out how dangerous it would be if the United Nations actually got control of the Internet. I will say, in in closing out our little conversation tonight, that Texas uh, United States Senator Ted Cruz, along with Utah uh, Republican Mike Lee and James Langford, a Republican from Oklahoma, actually sent a joint letter back in late May to the Department of Commerce expressing deep concerns with the proposal. And Senator Cruz, always the advocate for freedom, uh, has also issued, he's put out a video you can see, find online, where he's essentially saying, we have to keep the internet free, free of taxes, free of regulation, and free of censorship. And so this idea that this issue is percolating in the 2016 election cycle, this is a fabulous fabulous issue to have a conservative uh, candidate speak up about and just say, we, this is, this is you know, time to fight for freedom of speech, for the future of freedom of speech. So I think it's a great political issue for, for someone who wants to stand up for speech, I, and I wish they would do it more. Um, Claudia, can't thank you enough. Thanks for calling in. Thanks. Great talking with you. Okay, so that was my interview with Claudia Rosette. I pre-recorded that because it is Labor Day weekend, and obviously it occurred to me that some people like to take a break. Not us. We're right here in studio, but uh, she is just a, an extraordinary guest to have uh, join us on the show. And this issue, I do think, as I was saying at the close of our interview, it would be a brilliant issue to have conservatives talking about, not just Ted Cruz, who is speaking about it, but other conservatives, because it's not, you know, first I'll say this. The Internet is we, I, it's impossible to overstate its importance in getting truth and getting uh, getting just wisdom out to the world that they otherwise have no uh, ability to get. This is why repressive governments control the Internet in their own countries. Because if people living in uh, some, you know, repressive regime could go on the Internet and read, really? Other countries have freedom of speech. Other countries have freedom of religion. Uh, I mean, the, the, you, you know, when you ha- live in a repressive regime, the government doesn't want the people to figure out what the real world's like. And it's true whether it's in North Korea, uh, probably in Cuba, I'm going to guess in some of the more repressive Islamic countries. And, and there are, there are just many, many examples, and Claudia Rosset alluded to a few, where governments try to limit access to the internet because they try to limit knowledge of the people. And so this is, you know, the United States has led this, the internet, I mean, it was invented, the internet was 
not invented by Al Gore, contrary to popular belief, actually invented by the Department of Defense, and it has been operating under America's control, and we don't do it in any, to use Ted Cruz's term, in an imperialist manner. We simply operate ICANN and the Internet with free access for all. I mean, that's the entire purpose of it. And what this reflects, President Obama's willingness to let this icon go under the control of the United Nations, there are so many things you can read into that about President Obama. I'm just going to tell you a couple. One is this. In the start of his presidency, early on, President Obama made some comment about, yes, we think America's, we Americans think America is exceptional and the Greeks think they're exceptional or whatever his whole sentence was, mocking the idea of the notion that America has an exceptional identity in the world. But it does. America is unique in the world in terms of elevating, this internet's a perfect example of it, elevating the rights and freedoms of people, elevating, protecting freedom of speech, freedom of association, which is happening on the internet. It's a form of association. America has a high moral standard about the rights of individuals woven into our fabric as a country. Most countries have nothing like that. In fact, just think, just picture yourself in a year from now, if this happens, internet controlled by the UN, they wouldn't suddenly shut it down the next day. But over time, you'd think, hey, I was, we're trying to get a new website up to, to explore this issue about whatever it is the concern is, you know, Saudi Arabia's execution of gay people. We want a new website to talk about that. Now, if you had Saudi Arabia or some group of Islamic countries or the UN itself or some subset of the UN who don't want you to know about that information, they weren't, they're not going to give you, you're not going to get your, your website. You're not going to be able to put it up because this is the, this is the power of controlling who can be on the internet. And so what reflects about President Obama is he truly has no comprehension. I mean, the, the most innocent explanation is he has no comprehension in the difference of the quality of thought America has brought to the world and brought to the control of the Internet. He doesn't see it as any better as, the, as compared with the thought of people in the, in the uh, more repressive regimes in this world. He doesn't see a difference. He, doesn't, he can't see it or else worse, he does see it and he's okay with it. Either way, this is an outrage that we, and this is one of those things, you can't see the issue if you don't realize America is exceptional. In fact, there's a lot of the fairness monitors of the world saying, well, why should America have control? That doesn't seem fair. Give it to everybody. Give it to the UN. Folks, if you in two years from now can't get the website you want, you can't find the information you want because your information access is being controlled by the United Nations, you're going to look back and say, why didn't America speak up? Why didn't people listen to United States Senator Ted Cruz from Texas who tried to, to raise the alarm bell? I mean, this is, it's, you know, we, it seems like we talk about so many issues and they all have these big consequences and they do have big consequences, but this is so major. This is so major. And so we, and you know, you have Hillary Clinton coming along who wants to be president. She doesn't see America as any more exceptional than President Obama does. This would make sense to her, her globalist mentality, her, well, yes, we should all own this issue together, own the Internet together. Folks, this is, and I do think Donald Trump could score a lot of points for himself with younger voters, too, pointing out how absurd it is 
that we would, as America, would consider surrendering control of the Internet to people who repress speech. This would be a great issue for him. I would love to have him talk about that kind of thing. So speaking of Donald Trump and the presidential campaign, we're going to turn the second hour and, and talk about a lot of different things that are happening. Um, in, the, in this uh, last week or so, we had a huge uh, immigration uh, speech by, a huge immigration speech by Donald Trump in Phoenix. It was actually excellent. And actually, I did. I do Fox News Radio political analysis. I did it like all day long the next day. I couldn't sing its praises more highly. I mean, he went through. He stayed true to his conservatism, to original ideas. He was strong. He did a great job. He also did a great job speaking um, with the president of Mexico, meeting with him. He really. He gave an appearance of being presidential. He did a great job. So we're going to hit on what he said matters in this uh, immigration policy going forward. He brilliantly wove it in with security, which is the other big issue. So uh, after our break, I'm a leading ladies, our second hour roundtable. Joining me, Lori Medina, Mari Sullivan are here. We're going to talk about how Trump's doing, how Hillary's doing, um, and how come conservatives aren't winning in the primaries challenging incumbents. That was a little bit disappointing this week. So talk to you after the top of the hour. second hour round table on America Can We Talk with Debbie Georgiatis. More talking truth about America. And welcome back to America Can We Talk. This is Debbie Georgiatis. My second hour round table leading ladies are here. Radio. You should hear it. We should actually have the radio on even on the break because in the breaks we're arguing about politics. Discussing slash arguing. Anyway, so Lori Medina. Passionately, Mar- dis- passionately <laughs> discussing and disagreeing sometimes. Okay, so I'm Debbie Georgias, your host. I have my leading ladies tonight are Mari Sullivan and Lori Medina. And, you know, we always do a rapid fire roundtable question at the top of the second hour. And here is what I want to hit you with, ladies. Okay, so we had... We had a few hits against conservatives, it seems, in this last several weeks. We've had conservative challengers, primary challengers, unable to unseat long-term, in some cases, long-term incumbent Republicans, almost regardless of how widely disliked those Republicans are. The three examples I'll give, Kelly Ward, who's been on the show twice, she's been at our house, at a fundraiser for her, love the lady. Kelly Ward ran in a Senate primary in Arizona against a long-term, in fact, 
decades long term, Senator John McCain lost 52 to 39. In Florida, Congressional District uh, 19, there was a Dan Bongino who ran a conservative challenger. We had actually three people in three way primary Francis Rooney, Ch- uh, Chauncey, Chauncey Goss, and Dan Bongino. Bongino got 17% of the vote. Third one was in Wisconsin, Congressional District 1, Paul Ryan, who is a sitting Speaker of the House, challenged by Paul Nealon. Paul Nealon got 15%. So it seems like in the year of Trump, when he seems so seemingly popular, conservative challengers cannot win these primaries. And there are probably more I could mention. I'll mention those. So, Lori, what do you think is going on here? Well, I don't think this is any different from any other year. The fact that challenges are, challengers are losing. Um, you know, I, I would love to have seen Trump to have had some coattails and for some of these people to have won on his coattails. And really, if you look at Paul Nealon and Kelly Ward, uh, they cozied up as close to Trump as they could get. I mean, my goodness, uh, Trump, you know, came very close to even endorsing Paul Nealon and Kelly Ward. And it was the RNC that, you know, grabbed him by the ears and set him straight and told him he had to endorse the incumbents. Um, You know, uh, this is an issue, like I said, very near and dear to my heart because I feel like how can you have a healthy party? unless you are able to have uh, free and fair uh, primary elections uh, where you where challengers have, uh, you know, uh, just as good of an opportunity to run. But but let's face it, the system is set up to protect the incumbents. It's a, it's a it's an incumbent protectionist racket that is happening. That's my line. You stole my phrase, incumbent protectionist racket. You said that? <laughs> Not tonight. Other times oh, I said it. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, anyway, <laughs> great minds think alike, Debbie. Yeah. Um, so, you know, um, and so, I mean, that's the way our system is set up, unfortunately. And, you know, I've, I've worked with a lot of candidates, uh, help run campaigns for challengers. And uh, this is a really tough thing. And this is usually it comes down to the party uh, will latch on to some issue to try to uh, discredit the challenger, and usually the challenger is like somebody that has an impeccable uh, background of, of who they are, what they've done, what they stand for, who they represent, uh, what they've done in their lives, achieve in their lives, and and they will latch on to one single crazy cuckoo issue. Or even uh, make it sound crazy. Yeah, well, exactly. Well, that's the point, is they take something uh, to make them sound crazy, and that's what they did with Kelly Ward. Um, uh, you know, with uh, my dear, you know, Dr. Milton Wolf in, in uh, Kansas did the same thing with him. Uh, Dan Bongino, poor guy, never had a chance down in Florida. Yeah. And I love Dan, Dan Bongino. If you read him on Conservative Review, uh, listen to his podcast. I mean, he's fantastic. Former Secret Service. Uh, but so anyway, I, I just... It's a very sad thing. It's an indictment, I believe, against our party. And I'm- it is an indictment against the party. Mari, what do you think this problem is? I mean, what, why, why don't conservatives win these? Um, I am thinking, thinking, thinking. I, I, I get the passion in the room, Lori. I do. And I have a couple of thoughts here just off the top of my head. This is an election year. And I think that we've got to keep the Senate. We've got to keep Congress. I think a lot of things um, with these new people on the, the screen, like Kelly mm-hmm. Ward, can she win against the Democrat that'll be put up? Or is it a sure thing with McCain? I think a lot of people like me, if I had voted in Arizona, I'd go, we got to keep the Senate. 
I'm going to vote for McCain. And furthermore, and furthermore, (laughs) I supported him. I supported his support of the search. I'm just, you know, there is strategy. Here's the other thing. Pete Sessions, who I know you know of great deal, he didn't win his first time out. He didn't win his first time out. And we wish he would have kept losing. Yeah, there you go. You know, we have about 30 seconds left here in this segment. This is a short segment, just like the top of the first hour. And I really wanted to hear this because I will tell you that I find this whole experience of serious, competent primary challengers cannot make headway against an incumbent. Yep. It's not just, it is a name recognition problem. I mean, the incumbent has it, and they, they once they're elected, they get their name out there all day long in the yep. district. But number two, it is a decision by the GOP in Washington to spend their money and send their money to keep the incumbent people in place. It's so much money out of Washington, it's really distorting the right of the people yes. to hear both sides. It's deeply unfair to, to the incumbent challenges. It's not what the party should stand for, which is why I'm for convention the states term limits that's me and we come back amen yeah amen there we come back we'll just talk about this more don't go away on we have fun music this week to go with labor day weekend we've got some work in music okay so back to what we were talking about you know we were uh this show is always about and i try to make sure and say this every every show america can we talk it may sound like we talk about politics all the time but it is not necessarily is not really a pro political show as much as my idea is it's the idea about preserving america recognizing why america is exceptional and great what makes it unique and then preserving it. And so many things happen in political campaigns and they happen in American culture and in our foreign policy and tax policy, all sorts of ways. And the resolution to our issue should not always be what do the Democrats say, what do the Republicans say? It should be what will preserve America? So uh, on that note, you know, it's very interesting. We have uh, one, we have presidential election coming up. We have one candidate just recently acknowledged to the FBI. She has brain damage, but that's okay. Go ahead, Hillary. But I will say something I learned that I think is really, um, you know, important to put in context. This is an election where, to my view, what Hillary's been doing, she's been ahead in the polls. So she's running a campaign essentially saying, I'm staying home. I mean, let Donald Trump hang himself. I'm giving him enough rope. He's going to hang himself. And, you know, and he makes all these gaffes and the media is on her side. I mean, NBC, CBS, ABC, CNN, MSNBC, they're all in Hillary's camp, all getting apoplectic when Giuliani said, I think Hillary might be unhealthy, getting just hysterical in any criticism of her. And so her campaign's mostly been, let me hang out at home and barely, I mean, it's something like 273 days now since she's had a press conference. She doesn't even talk to America. And what that means, if you're listening, she doesn't talk to you. She doesn't think she has any obligation to talk to you to answer questions that aren't prompted by her buddies in the media who are drooling all over her trying to support her. She doesn't think she has to talk to you. Donald Trump is, you know, he's the underdog here. He is a new guy in the scene and he's in for the fight. So I was going to tell you, I'm going to turn to you, Mari, in a second, but I saw this thing recently I could not believe. Three years ago, Hillary Clinton had a favorite, the Americans polled, large number of Americans polled three years ago. She had a 
the percentage of Americans who had a favorable view of Clinton, favorable, a positive view of Hillary, 67%. So just three years ago, 67%. Unfavorable, very low, only 26%. That's three years ago. Fast forward to now where she is tanking in the polls big time. Her unfavorable rating is always much higher than her favorable. So it's a flip from three years ago when her favorables were a lot higher. Now her unfavorables are higher, 58 to 41. Uh, they have all sorts of, she gets up to 60 unfavorable. So she's tanking, which is, you know, which is understandable. And honestly, it's because she's in the public eye. Right. Uh, she's also tanking with women. I mean, there was a huge poll, a change in poll very recently. In early August, she polled 54% favorable among women and 43% unfavorable, even in the space of a month. In a month, she has her likability among women has taken a nine point hit. So here's the question. I'll start with you, Mari. I mean, you, saw, you said in our pre-show conversations, you saw some good things coming out of the Trump camp and Hillary's tanking. So what does Trump have to do to win? What is he doing that's right? Well, I think this is going to be the tortoise and the hare. This might be a fable for all times because Hillary's hiding. She thinks Trump is going to gaff himself into, I guess, the dustbin of history. We'll see, Hillary. We'll see. Uh, I think that Trump, the leader, has emerged. I want to hear what you think, Debbie and Lori. And I think the Dem media meme that Trump is dangerous has been turned upside down. Let's see what's going on. Trump, he's a leader. He's in Milwaukee when there's riots. He's in Louisiana when there's flooding. He gets invited to Mexico. He goes there. And what does he say when he comes back? We agree. We talked. We came to come to know each other. He showed that he's got the ability to converse with leaders on the national stage. And on the meme that he is dangerous, let's see who's dangerous. Hillary is dangerous. She endangered our national security by using an illegal, unsecured server to serve her political aspirations and to make money. She's incompetent. Debbie, you went through that in the first hour. She can't remember. She lost cell phones with sensitive info. Her server was actually breached because she went on a fishing expedition. She thought classified markings were alphabetical paragraphs. And she's absolutely hiding Kellyanne Conway was asked about Trump's immigration speech, and they actually asked her about Hillary's position. And she said, why are you asking me? I'll tell you why. Because (laughs) she's nowhere to be found. Why don't you call her up and see if you can get an interview with her? I'll tell you where she is right now. She's in the Hamptons with Cher and the rest of the people that give her money and embrace her. She's not looking out after the interests of the American people. She doesn't think she has to give her. She kind of says, what Obama said, more of that. I mean, she really is. There's very little she feels need to spell things out, I think. But I, I mean, where are you there, Lori? Well, I, I think that Trump is definitely having a better week. And I will give the credit to Kellyanne Conway. Um, that gal is one smart cookie. And uh, I've always been a big fan of hers. And, um, you know, and listen, uh, and I'm not trying to slight Trump, Mari, okay? <laughs> I'm not trying I'm not trying to slight Trump. Oh, go because, ahead. No, but the, well, I mean, Trump hired her. So, I mean, he was smart enough to hire her and he was smart enough to take her advice. So, just so you know, Mari, <laughs> I am not slighting Trump. Uh, but I but I say this is Kellyanne Conway, uh, you know, grabbing uh, Trump by the hair top and saying, this is what you're going to say. These are these are the speeches. Uh, this is how you're going to give them. And this is what you're going to do. And I and that's why I feel like he's 
he's really become more focused um, and he's not all over the board like he is, you know. But you know what I will say on that? He has given recent speeches, and we have clips coming up in a second of his speeches in black churches. I mean, he gave a thing in a black church a couple days ago or yesterday, and it was quite stellar. We're going to play a link in just a moment. But he has given great speeches recently. I mean, the, the, the immigration speech was stellar. The ten, if you haven't read the Wall Street Journal 10-point summary, He's just, it was stellar, and he's given great speeches on foreign policy, economic policy, terrorism, race relations. He's out there giving speeches, Mm -hmm. and I know that Hillary's trying to whine and say, well, he's just reading them. So what? She can't even read them. Yeah, she, she can She can barely speak. So she, she can't stand up. She can't stand up, so she can't give them. To read and, them. and on top of that, Donald Trump's a strong character. He's not going to give a speech he doesn't believe in. Right. Now, he's just not. I agree. He, he's not a flowing, eloquent, statesman-like, you know, orator. So we already had that in Obama, and we see where we are. He's, you know, he's galvanizing his speech giving. But Trump wouldn't do it if he didn't think it. And so he's got someone writing better speeches for him. I'm all for that. But his speech in the black church raises a lot of Things. I want to actually hit that if we can. Do you have that ready to go for Trump and the church? Here we go. For centuries, the African-American church has been the conscience of our country. So true. It's from the pews and pulpits and Christian teachings of black churches all across this land that the civil rights movement lifted up its soul and lifted up the soul of our nation. It's from these pews that our nation has been inspired toward a better moral character, a deeper concern for mankind, and spirit of charity and unity that binds us all together. And we are bound together, and I see that today. This, was, this has been an amazing day for me. The African-American faith community has been one of God's greatest gifts to America and to its people. I am here today to listen to your message, and I hope my presence here will also help your voice to reach new audiences in our country, and many of these audiences desperately need your spirit and your thought. I can tell you that. Becoming the nominee of the party of Abraham Lincoln, a lot of people don't realize that Abraham Lincoln, the great Abraham Lincoln, was a Republican, has been the greatest honor of my life. It is on his legacy that I hope to build the future of the party, but more important, the future of the country and the community. I believe we need a civil rights agenda for our time. I got to tell you, folks, that was was excellent. And, you know, I listened to his whole speech and I read his whole speech. You can read it online. You know, this is the other, in addition to the fact that he's speaking in the tone, which is unlike his normal speech tone, which is so um, flamboyant. What? Shouting. <laughs> shouting. Pretty much shouting. Passionate. Yeah. You can say passionate. Yes. <laughs> okay. Mariella says it with a nice word. But, you know, it's, it was real. I mean, his tone was real. These people at this church gave him a standing ovation. And there were, there were tears in people's eyes because the whole speech was like that. And, you know, you contrast it with Hillary Clinton. He sounded warm. He sounded like he's talking to them like her people. Hillary Clinton sounds like she's pouncing on people. I don't know if you have time for a clip in this segment, but, okay, let me hit Hillary Clinton how she talks. I don't feel no ways tired. I come too far from where I started from.
Okay, I'm serious. Could you? I mean, everyone's cringing in this room having to listen to that. This is how Hillary Clinton talks in the black churches. She brags about going there, but she talks down to people as though they're just people. I mean, I just, if you can't see the contrast in that, then I don't know about you. We're going to talk a little more after this about Donald Trump's outreach. Yeah, and then talk about burkinis in France. It's actually an amazing story. Don't go away. Welcome back to America Can We Talk. This is Debbie Georgiatis, my second hour leading lady roundtable. Tonight I have Mari Sullivan, Lori Medina joining me. And um, it's kind of funny. We, uh, a previous uh, board, tonight we have Greg Lindemood helping us with the boards. We, our previous board guy used to say quite often, your discussions off air are almost more entertaining than on air because we get into it between the show. Okay, between on the breaks. But what I really want to turn to, to, to wrap up on the church speech that Donald Trump made this week, the other thing I wanted to say about this really important is Donald Trump is making a very overt effort to speak to the black community and to talk about, and I hope he continues, I hope he nails Hillary in the debate about the fact that Democrat policies toward the inner city, low-income communities, have been failed policies five decades is long enough. We've had them long enough. They have failed people. They have caused misery, destruction of the family. They have just bred a horrible climate, and Americans of every color and nationality deserve better. Americans deserve the principles and ideas America was founded on, not the very socialistic policies of the of the democrat left which just create long-term dependency and no opportunity for upward mobility in fact you know, i'll tell you there's okay you might want to say something kate yes well i was just going to say back in the black church you know there was a lot of criticism of trump for even going to the black church and i loved what he did he went in and he was welcomed by bishop jackson who was also criticized by the Democrats, and the black activists. Why? Because all he wanted to bring to his congregation was, let's listen to the man, let's listen to his information about how he can bring back jobs to Detroit. We have to have these discussions in America. The Dems and the Hillary, they don't want that discussion because their policies are a total failure. Okay, and I want to say something on that, and then we're going to turn to our burkini thing, because I really do want to talk about this burkini thing. But there's an attitude out of Hillary's mouth and a lot of Democrats, which is essentially, we own the black Mm -hmm, vote. mm -hmm. We own the women's vote. We own the Hispanic vote. Nobody gets to think or say anything that disagrees with that. We own that vote. It's the most condescending, demeaning, outrageous attitude. And Hillary has that behind. It's, it's, it's her tone behind everything she's saying. It's a Donald Trump, how dare you talk to my voters? I own them. That's how I see it. I, I was going to turn to Burkini, but you are you trying no, to? No, okay. no. Because this is actually a really interesting thing. You know, um, I sometimes co-host on a Christian radio station, too, and we had a big discussion on a similar issue um, this week. But there was a case, a story that came out about uh, people who wear burkinis. If you haven't heard that word, it is a is a play on the word bikini, but burka. a burka. Yeah, it's yeah. a burka and a bikini put together. Yeah. yeah. And so basically in France, and Lori's going to tell you the story. 
well, Debbie, you know, a few weeks ago on Twitter, I started uh, seeing pop-up pictures and the word burkini, and I thought, what in the world? And um, so basically, I started, it, it started, it's in France, and on the seashores of France, on the beautiful beaches, the French beautiful beaches, and all the the immigrants, the refugees that are coming into France, we know they've had a refugee problem. There's been a lot of um, uh, Islamic uh, Syrian refugees come into France, and uh, there's women that uh, are, you know, belong to the Islamic faith, Muslim, that when they go to the beach, they want to be respectful to their religion and they want to wear a head-to-toe covering. And uh, have you seen the pictures, Mari, of yes. the ladies? Okay. So uh, it, it, I would almost describe it as what we would call a wetsuit. I mean, isn't that kind of, I mean, right. just, just for our listeners who don't know what it looks like, I mean, we're kind of trying to de- describe it here. It's probably like a wetsuit, like their face kind of shows and it covers their head, everything covers. And um, anyway, so the, the French people uh, were very upset about these ladies, these Islamic ladies showing up on the beaches wearing these what are now being called burkinis. And so when I first started seeing this article come out, the French were mad about it. And I thought, yeah, go get them, French. Let them have it. Go after these Muslims. That's awesome. Let them have it. Fight them. Fight back at them. And I loved it. But, you know, the more I started reading about it and started reading some other opinions on it, I realized I was all wet. Um, that I had made, yuck, yuck. <laughs> I had to make a pun, uh, that, you know, really the way I should be looking at this is completely different. Um, do I completely disagree with the Islamic faith? Absolutely. I mean, you ladies know, I mean, there, there isn't, I mean, I, I get angry when I see a woman and a little girl in a hijab because I get angry about that oppression that's happening to that little girl. Um, so I have... No love towards the Islamic faith. I just want to say that first of all, so we know. Um, But what we have going on here is people who are, whether their faith we agree with or not, they are living out their faith and they are adhering to it by wearing this head-to-toe covering. And the French people were saying, you cannot uh, fulfill and live out your faith. Now, isn't that kind of the same conversation we have going on here in America right now with religious liberties? Um, You know, we've got the Kleins, uh, you know, Melissa Klein, she got her bakery shut down because she would not bake a cake for a gay couple, a homosexual couple that wanted to be married. We have instances all across the country. We have, you know, the lawyers, uh, Debbie, we've talked about that they're being called into question whether or not they can uh, have a license, uh, you know, because they will not marry uh, married couples or, or gay couples. Um, so that's why this is causing great consternation on my part, because this is a religious liberty issue of whether or not these women can wear head to toe covering. Um Again, I don't agree with Islam, but if this is how these ladies want to have free expression of their faith where they are not offending or upsetting or affecting anyone, they should be allowed to do that. Now, let me give a a situation where I think is wrong, where there's a job or some type of uh, ID or licensing where these women try to wear the burqas and they're completely covered up. And how do you know who they are? And they try to take their photo for an ID. I think that's not not correct. Um, So anyway.
right. I think these ladies should be allowed to wear the burkinis. Um, again, not supporting Islam, but they should be allowed. And I think it's a, you know, again, a, can- a canary in the coal mine for us here in America that this is what, again, it's fighting against religious liberty issues that we have here, and it's going on all over the world. It, go ahead. Well, like Ronald Reagan said, if we don't defend our liberties, they won't last. And so in our great country, in our form of government, a constitutional republic, we've got checks and balances so that our First Amendment rights, freedom of religion, freedom of speech will be protected. And if there's not a security problem or a public health risk, right. there's no reason why these ladies shouldn't be able to be on the beach in their burkinis. Yep. I was going to say a couple of things about really quickly. This this case is occurring in France that we're talking about. And this is a really important thing to think about in America. In France, they don't have a constitution and a bill of rights. They don't have that like we have here. And even more deep, deeper, they don't have a culture that is permeated by the idea of freedom of religion as being an elevated, important right. Leave aside whether there's a constitution says it. In fact, France is increasingly secular, and not the Christian church is not thriving there. And so it's a great contrast, a picture of Americans to, to have in your head about the difference that in America, our constitution and Bill of Rights, how it has affected us. Because we have an intuitive reaction in America. If it's your freedom of religion... I don't have to understand it. I wouldn't embrace it, but I respect your right to have that. They don't have that same feel in France. There's not that inbred, in-the-culture assumption that freedom of religion matters that much. And so America, this is another example of why America's greatness, why America is exceptional and great and unique, is because it was born of, the country was born of, the idea of respect for each individual and his or her right to pursue their religion and the freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, all those things. Now, France, I think this actually got overturned, went to some court, and the court said, no, you can't kick them off Mm -hmm. the beach because they're wearing burkinis. But in America, I I read a case recently, so I think it's really important to recognize, in America, we have that right, and yet we have, as Lori mentioned, we have cases like bakeries being shut down by the government because they won't participate in a gay wedding. So we've elevated the right of, of, uh, of same-sex marriage advocates over the rights of religious freedom advocates. So we're, we don't have it quite right in America. We're still struggling with it. We don't have it quite right because we should say to the bakery owner, if that's how you feel, a couple can find different bakeries. We've got to work even more on revering that First Amendment mm-hmm. right. One of the quick things, this case in Florida, I just read about some guy who's a member of the Rastafarians, which uh, required dreadlocks, really long dreadlocks, and he worked at Disneyland as a cook. Ooh. And so, but at, in, in the cook area, you everyone has to have their hair up in a net. So he had his hair up in a net, just like everybody else did, but they fired him. They said, you got to cut your hair. He said no. Uh, and so Disneyland fired him. So the EEOC took his case and just said, yeah, you have to accommodate his religion. As long as his hair is in a net, he's no different than anybody else. Not, you know, and so it's a really great thing. In that case, EEOC saw the individual freedom issue and got it right. We need to get it right on the issues relating to same-sex marriage and Christian and other face views of same-sex marriage. We have to work on more in America than we have so far. So, you know what? We'll come back. I want to change. Uh, we we have our cruise through the news at the start of the, of the end of the first hour. We're going to have it in the, sec- in the second hour. Lots of news to run through and everyone's going to chime in with 10 seconds tell us what they really think so talk to you after a flash
welcome back to the final segment of America Can We Talk. This is Debbie George Adams, my leading lady roundtable second hour of Mari Sullivan, Lori Medina here, and uh, we're doing a little bit of music relating to Labor Day. We uh, love our usual music, but it's Labor Day weekend. Okay, so we sometimes do a cruise through the news segment. We do it in the first hour often, but we're going to do it right now. We have so many stories. We just want to do a quick cruise to the news. And before that, I need to take just a moment to thank the sponsor of this show. Funding for America Can We Talk is provided by GC Works. They are a Dallas-based company. They perform research in advanced technology, and they deliver innovative approaches to the oil and gas industry. Many thanks to GC Works. Okay, here's our cruise to the news. So get ready. It's going to go fast. Okay, first of all, uh, there was a story that amazingly, shockingly, Obama duped America on another thing, which is there were apparently last-minute secret exceptions that nullify important provisions of the Iranian nuclear deal, basically saying two exemptions that nullify restrictions on how much low-enriched uranium Iran can keep in nuclear facilities— a provision that allows Iran to continue operating nine hot cell radiation containment chambers and permission for Iran to store 50 tons of what's called heavy water in Oman under its control instead of selling it, as, as which was required by the nuclear deal. So are you guys shocked? Obama duped us and Iran, we are giving them nuclear weapons. That's what this is about. What? I can't believe it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. He would fake us out. I know. Any comment there, uh, Marie? I'm not surprised at all. Of course not. The whole Iran nuke deal is based on a lie, that there are moderates in Iran. They will have nuclear weapons. I am praying that when Donald Trump is the president, that will be overturned. And here's my question to Hillary Clinton. Do you support the Iranian nuke deal? I know. Actually, that'd be a great question. She said so before. I'd love to make her do it in a debate and say, what about the fact that basically, mm-hmm. and part of the thing was that these exceptions for Iran exemptions, they they uh, violate the provisions of the Corker Bill, which right. uh, was yeah, right. directly opposite the Corker Bill. Yeah. How did the how did the how did the uh, North Korean nuclear arms deal work out for your husband, Bill? They got nukes right. in 10 years. Right. Oh, yeah. OK. And related, actually, to this fact that the Iranian deal should not even be enforceable because it was a treaty that President Obama negotiated on behalf of America, but he didn't follow the Constitution that says the treaties have to go through the United States Senate. And so, again, backing up to know why we have Donald Trump as a presidential candidate, it's because the American people, especially conservatives, are livid at the GOP senators, the majority senators, who never stop President Obama on anything they should have on the Iranian deal, just said, you know what, I don't care if you say it's a deal, I don't care what you say it is, it's a treaty, we're going to treat it as a treaty, we're going to have a vote in the Senate, and you don't get your two-thirds, you can't have this deal. But they just let President Obama walk all over him. Same thing's happening, here's the next thing, on the climate deal. President Obama is just treating it as a done deal. The communists have signed on, China's on to this Paris climate deal, China's on, and President Obama is just decreeing U.S. ratification. Anybody? No, I'm not surprised, because... It's his way or the highway. Make it so. He's like Captain Picard running around in his little <laughs> Enterprise vehicle uh, well, with his teleprompter. He's emperor. He's, emperor. he's the and, emperor. You know, I can't get it through Congress, so I'm either going to use the EPA or I'm just going to sign this piece of paper. And sadly, but, if he tried to get it through Congress, they'd probably let him have it anyway because our Congress does not stand. Has they, no backbone. Right. They have no backbone and they give him everything he wants. The one I thing believe. I know about Donald Trump is he does believe in the three branches of government and the legislative process. He wants to stop these executive orders and legislating through 
the regulatory branches of our government. I hope he really does. I know. I, I hope he does. It's it's irresistible, it seems, to presidents, especially when they have big plans and big dreams and they get to Washington, they can't get the House and the Senate to support them. They just, they get He doesn't exasperated. have the support of the American people on all this global warming. That's no, not, he doesn't. It's not a, there's not a consensus in science. There never should be. Science should always be questioning, questioning, questioning. Yeah, well, this climate deal, I just have to say, uh, Republicans would have been really smart. They still could. They still could say, hey, we have the Senate majority. We're the GOP. We're voting no. But they won't do it. Anyway, so, okay, here's another cruise to the news item. Georgetown University, my alma mater, my law school alma mater, I'm sad to report. I mean, I love going to Georgetown. I love living in Washington. But the undergraduate school has announced they're giving descendants of slaves favorable preferential treatment in admission they're going to they're announcing a policy that says that if you are a descendant of a slave you get preferred status i mean we're talking folks this is 150 years ago (laughs) i mean honestly there was a little bit more of a story too than that that apparently georgetown itself owned slaves um and these two priests in 1838 served as president of the university and they orchestrated the sale of 272 men and some women and children for about $3.3 million in today's dollars to pay off debts to the school. So that's an ugly fact of their history. You know, it's an ugly fact that, that it was slavery at all. Okay. It was 1838. So what they're saying is, so racism today will make up for racism back then. This is called reparations, Debbie. It is. It is. I mean, honestly, I wish the Georgetown alumni would speak up and say, you know what? If you're going to pull stunts like this, yeah, I, I have plenty and the of other civil places. Rights, the civil rights movement was all about equal competition. It was all about, hey, let's put all these wrongs behind us. Every person in America can get out there and compete. We need to embrace what makes this country great and not talk about those things that... Uh, we can forgive our we can forgive ourselves for and you know what else no one receiving this benefit from georgetown today was a slave and no one who will be hurt by it which is some white students who will apply and they won't they may have been more qualified but they won't get in because the seats are being given to people by preference by race those people weren't slave owners well or asian i mean asian uh, you know, Hispanic. I mean, what about these other races? It's just being politically it's not just correct. Right. Yeah, it's not just being liked by the the Democrats and the media and the activists. So, and, Debbie, yeah. my, my cruise to the news. I'll do real quick. I actually was cruising through the news this morning you go. on the Sunday morning shows, and I caught like the last fifteen twenty minutes of Meet the Press, and um, it was. It was funny to me because they were all sitting around their little table and they were practically apoplectic because they were so they were kept showing poll numbers of how Trump was going up, Clinton was going down. But the big movement was when Gary Johnson, Jill Stein, Gary Johnson, the libertarian candidate, Jill Stein is the green uh, the Green Party candidate. And their numbers are really going up. And this little, <laughs> this little cabal, you know, this little uh, liberal democratic media cabal sitting at the meet the press table were just losing their minds at the idea that there was a chance actually that Hillary might lose because of Jill Stein. Now, would that not be poetic justice when it was Ralph Nader with the Green Party? And that is basically why Ra- uh, Al Gore lost to George Bush. 
it would be poetic justice does not begin. Plus, the left just, you know, placates environmental extremists yes. and, and just, you know, plays footsie all the time with them. And so if they if Hillary loses the nomination yeah. or loses the election because the Green Party. I mean, and Jill be, Stein has been coming out hard against Hillary. She's I mean, well, where hard. is Hillary? Was she on Meet the Press this morning? <laughs> <laughs> Where's Waldo? Yeah. OK, here is I laughed out loud. This is a news story. Hillary spokesman, hey, she'll hold press conferences after she's president. That's a vow. <laughs> that is a vow. For, I, this He said this in seriousness. Uh, the fact is it's been 272 days since Hillary Clinton's last press conference, but Clinton's lead press secretary, Brian Fallon, vowed that if elected, Hillary Clinton will hold press conferences. Boy. That is I good mean, news. That, it's amazing. Actually, I read something about that. The too, Queen will land. Yeah. <laughs> they, they've actually had, they've said starting now, they're going to allow press to travel in the plane with her. Her big plane. Yes. Her big plane. But they actually said in there, but do not assume it means increased access to Mrs. Clinton. Mm-hmm. They may just send back like one of her little uh, minions mm-hmm. to talk to the press. Just because they get to get in the plane, that doesn't mean she'll talk to them. I mean, this is a this is a a woman who just feels entitled to power. And these the the people are the peasants, even the reporters. Sorry, Marie. well, let's talk about her last news conference. We all remember it. She came out in the orange pantsuit, and what were they talking about? They were talking about why did you erase your emails? And she said, with a with you mean like with a cloth? And they, she was surrounded by these twenty people asking hard questions, and she was in her orange jumpsuit pantsuit, so she doesn't look good. She's defensive, and what she should have said is, "I use bleach bit for all my email well, erasures." That's, that's another, actually, on a very serious note. Mm-hmm. Bleach bit is not something the average Joe would know about. I mean, when she tried to act innocent, say, "You mean like with a cloth that I wiped them?" She, I mean, she is just mm-hmm. mocking America to your face. To your face, acting like, oh, they're probably talking about, did I have a cloth in my hand? When she knows that she's being asked, and she knows what bleach bit is. She knows it was destroyed, will completely destroy the record she's trying to hide. This is, I mean, it's astonishing we're in a place where she has a serious contention for president. Okay, I got to hit one more other. Okay, my quick line, my quick funny line was... Someone wrote about, he was a headline writer, and he was talking about the best headlines throughout history. And I guess it's a real art for him to be a headline writer. This one says, it was in the Washington Examiner, time to take the car keys away from Granny Clinton. Okay, do you all love that? I mean, you know how you get to a certain age when your parents get elderly and you have to, you know, kind of convince them to give you the car keys? He basically talked like that's who she is. Okay. That's she hasn't s- driven Debbie for 20 years. That's a good point. So, but it's still, it's the, it's the picture of her, you know? Yes. 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 Yeah. Okay. Here's another thing. And I, we're going to run out of time here, but I, this is just, I thought, kind of a poetic summary of President Obama's presidency. There's a headline that talks about, you know, the president has authority um, to designate certain land uh, in this country um, as some kind of a... Um, a monument. So he has, number one, Obama has seized more land by executive fiat than any other U.S. president. Very symbolic. He seized power in Washington. But this one, he actually seized 582,000 square miles of ocean water. Hmm. Square miles off of Hawaii to be seized as a national marine monument. The guy 
if he's all about Washington, all about federal control, there he is. Okay, this mean person is playing music while I'm trying to talk. This is Debbie George Addis and America Can We Talk. Thank you, Lori and Mari. Thank, Thank you, you, Greg, for doing the boards. Thank you for tuning in. Follow me at Debbie Can We Talk. Tune in every Sunday, 6 to 8. Check out our new Facebook page or website. We love talking to you and talking truth about America. Thank you for listening to America Can We Talk with Debbie Georgiatis. To learn more or to contact Debbie, go to americacanwetalk.org. America Can We Talk, truth about America. You're listening to RNCN, the digital destination for premium talk radio.